0: Day thirty of journey through scripture. Today we are looking at Job chapters fifteen through eighteen, as well as Matthew chapter twenty, verse twenty through thirty-four. Okay, Job chapter fifteen. So yesterday uh, we left off with Job, <clears throat> a Job uh, speech, Job, uh, Job's words, and. So uh, some of it, I noted, um, borders on unintelligible. Um, again, probably a reflection of his grief. I feel like I've I've spoken about that a few times, so I don't need to belabor that here. Um, chapter 15 is a speech of Eliphaz the Temanite, um, and here Job is basically um, talking about how he he's uh, you know kind of turning. Job has been turning against his friends a little bit, calling, t- accusing them of whitewashing with lies and uh, being worthless physicians, uh, the degree to which that's accurate. I'll leave you to be the judge. Um, and, uh, uh, just, just, uh, you know, kind of ending on a request for God to just kill him. And, uh, Eliphaz basically responds by saying, you're speaking unwise words, Job, and even sinful ones. Uh, you're condemned, really, by your own mouth here. Like, what you're saying right now is is is, is uh, terrible, uh, and this is itself making you guilty. So verse 6, your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. And Job responds to this um, in chapter 16... Um, by basically saying, you know, if the tables were turned, I could accuse you. I, I I could speak as you do. Verse 4, if you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Um, but really, again, uh, from Job's perspective, my contention is with God. He is the one who has ruined me. Uh, you see that in verses 6 through 17. Uh, take a look at verses 11 through 13 uh, within that. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. Um, This extreme level of frustration and very graphic image of how God has harmed him. And... um, and dis- he, then he goes on to despair that he's basically doomed to obscurity. Um, the, uh, the the second half of chapter sixteen and beginning of seventeen focus on that. Uh, as as he said last time he spoke, essentially, you know, he he was like, "I'm a laughing stock. Now I'm a byword among the people." Verses three through ten. Um, and. Uh, basically ends this chapter in despair, that he has no hope. Um, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? He ends the chapter with, who will go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Um, this, this cloying feeling of being alone, having nothing, being ruined by God. And then Bildad, the Shuhite, steps in and is basically look like, why are you angry with us? um why are we stupid in your sight uh why do you tear yourself in anger shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place like is is god going to going to uh undo the way creation works for you um and then basically the rest of chapter 18 from 5 to the end is look this is what the wicked get um they get what you get so um this as I've been calling it, mechanical view of God and the way He works in in the world. This is all that his friends have really been able to respond to him with. Okay, <clears throat> we're going to go to Matthew chapter twenty, verses twenty through thirty-four. Uh, this is an interesting passage, and it ends with a very significant verse in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and for those of you who aren't sure, the sons of Zebedee are John and James, and <clears throat> she comes up to Jesus, um, and, um, she's got her sons with her. It's probably worth noting that, uh, at least we know that John is, uh, likely in his teenage years now. We know this just because of how late in the century, the first century, he appears to be writing. This is, uh, i think and many others do the author of the gospel of john as well as the three letters of john as well as the book of revelation um so yeah he she appears with her her two sons that's not to say the other disciples by the way were uh super old we don't really have good data on how old a lot of them were probably quite a variety there but um I don't think it's a picture of her coming up with like two grown men. Although, I don't know, it probably wouldn't have mattered if they were older. But she comes up to him kneeling and asks requesting of him and he says to her, "What do you want?" And she says, "Say to that these two sons of mine are to sit one of your one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom." And it's worth noting at this point that there's a lot of confusion among Jesus' followers as to the nature of the kingdom, okay? Jesus has disclosed the fact that he will be arrested and crucified and even risen from the dead now several times. He's said this in the Gospel of Matthew, but he also speaks in parables, and things are tricky, and, and uh, it's that is such a, a shift in view as to what the Messiah, the Son of David, would be all about, that it's it's just hard for a lot of his followers, including James and John and and their mother, to to grasp, and uh, and so she wants she's going to request that these two sons who have followed him are are to be have these extremely prominent places in his messianic kingdom, and Jesus answers, "You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink?" right do you you anybody who wants to follow me into this do they understand that this is not a path directly to glory there is suffering before this um and the son's answer here we are able And then Jesus says to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Some interesting stuff there, okay? Because Jesus affirms that they will indeed drink his cup, because he knows that they will be faithful in following him. Uh, And in fact, James, uh, James does become the first killed among the apostles. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. Um, and John, uh, the the last we hear of him, he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. That's uh, in the Book of Revelation. And so, yes, they they will live lives of of um, of walking this narrow road with Christ, and and it will cost them to be his disciples. Uh, but then he also affirms, as we see there, the the father's authority, um, and. Um, and uh, this, is, this is not unique to this passage, right, that it's the Father who will grant, who will be where in the kingdom, who will occupy what place, uh, that it's it's not Jesus uh, himself, the Son, who formally calls those shots. Uh, we've seen statements like this. Um, chapter 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom this, the Son chooses to reveal him. Um, so, all things have been handed over to me. Notice, Jesus's authority, as uh, as Carson writes in his commentary, is a derivative authority. It is an authority from the Father. There are role distinctions in the Godhead, in the Trinity. Um, likewise, in chapter 24, verse 36, we're not there yet, um, but uh, Jesus says the—kind per- of a, a perplexing statement, a a, a theologically challenging statement. uh, Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Again, note the the primacy of the Father here. Um, Note note Jesus's submission to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. And then finally, even in the Great Commission, what does he say about all authority in heaven on earth? It's been given to him. so these are these are statements by Jesus uh, to that effect that the that the Father has um, an authority whom whom he himself submits to, even though elsewhere we learn that he is one with the Father. Um, so uh, one final verse that might be helpful in this is John chapter fourteen verse twenty eight. Uh, you heard me say to you, I am going away. This is Jesus speaking, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Um, so, yeah, that's all these things are true and, and inform our view of Jesus, Jesus' divinity, what it means to call him the Son, what it means to call the Father the Father. Um, but then Jesus a- ends by talking about how in the kingdom it's actually those who are servants, who are going to be the greatest. This is following on this theme of the, the first will be last and the last will be first, right? That the that unlike it is with the Gentiles, okay, it's uh it's not it it is not going to be the powerful, the rulers in the kingdom who are the great ones, but the servants. Um and in fact, the the word for servant here, it's worth noting, it can also be translated even slave. Um, so, um, and then he ends by talking about his own sacrifice, the cup that he will drink, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. uh this is, um, a very interesting verse because Matthew and most of the gospel writers, John is probably a bit of an exception to this, the gospel writers do not tend to dwell a lot on the theo. Oh, I shouldn't say it like that, but on the um, on the effects of Jesus's death and resurrection. Okay, they're theologically significant uh, in the Gospels that uh, that Jesus's death and resurrection. Um, but uh, in terms of like understanding the way in which it relates to our sin, the way in which it relates to our salvation, like the kind of looking under the hood and how it works, um, the Gospels don't theologize that much on it, which has actually been cited as a one reason to, to that bolsters their credibility, uh, because they do have the flavor more of historical reportage rather than taking the opportunity to um, put all these uh, little theological footnotes into the, the stories and everything, uh, but here uh, we have a, a rare place in Matthew. We, we did see Jesus would save his people from their sins, and here another big part of this this salvation theology that Jesus's life will be given as a ransom for many. That is a payment that will be made. It will be his life itself will be a payment, and indeed there are many writers. Um, today, as in the past, who have kind of balked at this, be like, well, how much does how much uh, do we owe God? Is this is this the, this this crude kind of financial thing? And no, this is a metaphor, right? The idea that something must be given for something else to rescue it. This ransom language comes straight from the Old Testament. Uh, the, the same same word that we would use for redeemed. Uh, and in, and in the Old Testament, it is God's people who are redeemed from slavery. And here we are redeemed from darkness, from sin, from the kingdom of the world that is opposed to the kingdom of God, by the giving by Jesus's giving of his life. So extraordinary uh, passage there, uh, very uh, important thing that is said. And uh, finally, um, uh, they are g- coming out of Jericho, so they are close to Jerusalem. Jer- Jericho is in the vicinity. Um, and a, and a great crowd is following Jesus. And um, there's two blind men there, and uh, they heard about Jesus, that he was coming by, and note the confession that they make, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Um, and uh, the, so acknowledging who he is, uh, it's, it's probably... Um, there's probably a bit of a symbolic meaning here, not to say that they weren't really blind or didn't really happen or something but um, oftentimes when blind people understand truth uh, there is something of a uh, of a uh, an irony to that I guess we could say a good kind of irony that here they are they are blind and yet they see. Um, uh, John John's gospel is a lot more explicit about that, in Jesus' healing of the blind man there, but here I think we see that as well. And the crowd um, tells them to be quiet, um, but they don't. They don't stop. They just keep calling out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. And um, Jesus stops and says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened And Jesus touches their eyes, and immediately they recover their sight, and they follow him. So you have this picture of discipleship, right? Um, No one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Jesus opening their eyes, and then having their eyes open, they follow him. Um, Another noteworthy thing, I think, about this is that this is part of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem, and um, so here he is in the vicinity, still working signs, still working miracles. That those who would confront him now, when he enters into Jerusalem, would have to grapple with in, in their evaluation of him. These are not just rumors uh, from the north; these from these these hillbillies up in the north, right? These are the notable signs are being performed. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us about this, but in, it's, it's worth keeping in mind that in the Gospel of John, uh, the raising of Lazarus is also taking place around this time. Um, so Jesus is going to be coming into the city, not just with words, but with signs that have to be grappled with by the priestly establishment there. Okay, that's it for today. Uh, thank you for joining me. I very much look forward to being with you again tomorrow. And until then, take care. Bye-bye.